not save ourselves. Rather, we need to be delivered from ourselves. And this tells me that we need rescue to come from another. <laughs> we need deliverance to come from outside of us. Now, I want to look at this in a story today from 1 Samuel. And you know we've been going through a series on 1 Samuel for a while before Christmas. And then we took a little break for Advent, and then we've been back into this story. And we've seen that through the book of 1 Samuel. God has been pursuing very kindly his people, giving them his leadership, even though they have rejected him. So God has raised up one king named Saul, but because of his rebellion and wanting to lead in his own way, God has raised up a new king named David. And God is putting David through a furnace of affliction, we've looked at, a trial after trial after trial to shape his heart to truly be after him, to truly delight in God's ways. So he's not testing David for no reason. He's wanting to shape him into his ways. That's God's kindness. So Saul has been pursuing him and pursuing him. But what happens if David starts to fail? What happens if David starts to become like Saul? What then? We're going to see that God is still faithful and he intervenes for David and for us when we are on the road to huge mistakes. When we're headed towards our own self-made disaster, God kindly intervenes into our hearts because he knows he's not only bringing deliverance for us from our enemies like Saul, he's also delivering us from our worst enemy, ourselves. So again, if you have a Bible, I encourage you, open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. I love walking through these stories with you all. And again, just encourage you to follow the story in your Bible. There'll be detail, details I don't mention, but would love you to sit in those as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, our story begins with a man named Nabal. A man named Nabal, and he's from a place called Carmel, which is nearby where David and his men are hiding out from Saul, who's still pursuing and seeking David out to kill him out of jealousy. And we learn that Nabal, he's a very wealthy, rich man. And some com commentators draw out that we're actually told about Nabal's wealth and how much he had before we're ever told his name, meaning that he almost seems to be defined by his possessions. He's defined by his wealth. This is where he's finding his identity, perhaps. And we're told that he has a thousand goats and 3,000 sheep. I don't know what this is in today's conversion rates. I have no idea, but I think in that day, it means he has more than enough, an abundance. He has deep and impressive wealth. But we also see that with all of this material gain, that Nabal does not act, uh, have the best sense or wisdom. His name, Nabal, literally means fool. And he's described as someone who is surly, bad-tempered, and mean. Not exactly a guy you want to hang out with. We're also told about Nabal's wife. Her name is Abigail. And scripture describes her very differently. It says that she is intelligent and she is beautiful. And whatever Nabal lacks in wisdom, it seems Abigail has in spades. She's entirely different. So because David and his men are nearby Carmel, where Nabal and his men are at, David gets word that Nabal is shearing his sheep. 
Now, this would have been a big moment in the year. It would have been a massive party as they're recognizing just how much wool they're going to be able to bring to the market. So Nabal and all his servants are in a huge celebration as they're seeing all this wealth that's about to be added to them. After all their hard work for a long year, they're about to celebrate all this about to be added to them. And so with this celebration, David sends men to Nabal as they're shearing his sheep to ask for a gift. With all this abundance, could they give him a gift? And we see this is entirely fair for David to ask for because he has been helping Nabal for the last several months. It says that he and his men have been like a wall around Nabal's shepherds and his sheep that they've gone above and beyond to watch over them, so that as long as David and his men were around Nabal's shepherds, not one of their sheep was missing. They treat them like their own. And this could have been entirely different, right? How easy it would have been for David to do nothing, to not help Nabal at all. He's got his own problems. Why is he investing time and energy to watch over someone else's sheep? Or even more, he could have easily, in all his needs, stolen some sheep. I don't think Nabal needed them. He already has plenty, but that's not David's attitude. Perhaps out of his own memories of the difficulty of being a shepherd, he comes in to help this man who already has such abundance. So David's men, they come with this hope and expectation for a gift. I thank you for all the work that they've done for Nabal. And they come to him with a greeting and a blessing, and they explain all the work that they've done for him, and and even say, ask your servants They'll tell you all that we've done for you. But we've got to remember, Nabal is a fool. So as soon as he hears all of this, he instead responds saying, who, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are plenty of servants leaving their masters these days, so why should I take my bread and my water and my meat from my shears and give them to these men who come from who knows where? So he's basically saying this David is just a rebellious servant and all his men are a bunch of nobodies. Not exactly the most tactful, wise, or kind thing to say for someone who's done so much for you. I want to pause in this and just look a little bit more deeply at the core, the heart of Nabal's foolishness here. I want to explore that for our hearts to understand. What's the core of Nabal's foolishness? We see in Proverbs chapter 26, uh, verse 12, we have, says, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? <laughs> there is more hope for a fool than for them. Scripture is laying out here that the worst kind of foolishness that you could end up in is pride. The worst kind of disaster and thinking you could have is, is maybe not being impatient, it's maybe not being reckless, but it's being wise in your own eyes and being full of pride. This is the greatest disaster that could overtake you. And this is what we see is at the heart of Nabal. It is pride, the core of his foolishness. We see this drawn out in the story in verse 17. As one of the servants, as we'll see later, goes to Abigail to give him news of what Nabal has said, the servant describes Nabal in this way. He says, he is such a wicked man. Nobody can talk to him. Nobody can talk to him. He's that kind of person that always rejects counsel, that although you try to speak to them, they have no ears to hear what you're trying to say. They already are convinced in their own way and have blocked out any kind of counsel. They are wise in their own eyes. This is the kind of man Nabal is. 
We also see his pride in the way that he talks about David. He says, who is this David, this son of Jesse, disregarding him? Which is crazy because as we've seen through 1 Samuel, everybody knows David is going to be the next king. Everybody in Israel has been singing David's praises literally. And David, he actually knows he's going to be king. Saul, the current king, knows he's one day going to have the throne. Jonathan, the king's son, knows he will one day have the throne. Everybody knows David will one day be king. It's just Nabal who's rejecting this reality, probably caught up in his own ways, his thinking of himself all the time, and cannot honor somebody else, always and only himself. We also see his pride in the way Nabal talks about his possessions. Did you notice he says, why should I give my bread, my water, my meat from my shears to these men who've come from nowhere? For Nabal, all that he has is not a gift from God. His breath, his very life, none of that is a gift. All of it he sees as his own, not something that's been graciously given to him. And so he's stuck in his own pride. So sit with me here this morning. Are we wise in our own eyes? Are we open to the counsel of other people? How do we view our possessions and how do we talk about other people? Do we honor them in conversations with others? Or do we want to maybe tear them down so that we look better? Are we wise in our own eyes? And if you have great strength to serve, if you have a heart to care for other people, if you have money to give, do you see all of these things as your own? Do you think this is mine and I can be exalted in it? Or do you see that everything you have is a gift? As 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, I love this, says, what do you have that you have not received? So let God's kindness and grace obliterate your pride. What do I have? Even if I have some skill, some ability, some way to serve, at the end of the day, I see even this is a gift from God. I have no reason to boast. Let it ruin your pride. But unfortunately, we see that Nabal is not the only fool in this story. He's not the only one. So David's men, they get this really unkind rebuke from Nabal, and they go back and they report to David everything that was said to him. And David immediately reacts in anger and tells all of his men, 400 of them, to strap on their swords. They're heading down to Nabal. And you can immediately guess that David is not doing this because he wants to have a nice conversation with Nabal. That's not why you bring a sword, right? He has something else in mind. And as he's making the journey to Carmel, where Nabal is at shearing his sheep, he's in such anger, he makes this promise. He says, it's been useless that I've done all of this work protecting his shepherds and sheep only for him to treat me this way. He's given me evil for the good I've given him. And then David makes this promise, this curse on himself. He says, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow morning, one male is left alive to all that belongs to Nabal. Again, what a strong statement. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by tomorrow morning I leave alive one male of all those who belong to Nabal. So from a rebuke to his heart, David has taken it to another level to seek revenge and enter into bloodshed. I again want to pause and look at the foolishness of David here. What's at the heart, the core of his foolishness? Look at another proverb with me, this time from Proverbs 12, 16. 
It says, Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. No sooner does David get word of what Nabal has said that he reacts in anger. He doesn't set it aside. He doesn't take time to calm down. He immediately rushes into revenge. Or consider this from Proverbs 29, verse 11. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. And not only is David quickly reacting in his anger, but he's anting it up. He's going to a whole other level. Nabal's insulted him, and now David has sworn to kill every male that belongs to Nabal. He's promised a massacre because of an insult, full vent to his rage. Do you see the foolishness of David here? As we look more deeply, we find that his foolishness is coming from the exact same place as Nabal. That David also is full of pride. That he's locked and lost into looking at himself. Because of this insult from Nabal, he's lost in himself and considering this, stuck in his own anger and a desire for vengeance. He's only looking at him and what matters about him. I think the best definition of humility comes from C.S. Lewis. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. This is so helpful. In other words, humility is not having a very low opinion and tearing yourself up all the time. Humility is self-forgetfulness. Humility is not being concerned with yourself at all. You've forgotten yourself in the equation. That's true humility according to Scripture. So if we could flip this on the reverse, we could say that pride is not being lost. Pride's not being obsessed with your own greatness. Pride is being obsessed with yourself at all. It's not that you're locked in about your own goodness and how amazing you are. It's that you are locked into yourself at all. That's pride. So even if there's been hurt in your life, disappointment from other people, if you find yourself ruminating in that, stuck inside internally about how you've been grieved, how you've been hurt, and you go over that in your mind and you're lost in your own desire for revenge, see the foolishness that you are stuck in pride. You are stuck in being obsessed with yourself in your own ways. I know there can be tragedy to other people hurting us. We're going to look at how this gets exposed later in the desire for God's justice, but we must be wary about our hearts being overly in love and attentive to ourselves. This too is foolishness we see in David. So we have a fool in the ball. We have a fool in David. Is there anybody wise in the story? Is anyone not concerned with themselves? Yes, we see there is someone. We need to rewind a little bit here in the story exact moment when Nabal makes this cutting remark about David and his men, and they go back to report to David, at that same moment, one of Nabal's servants has overheard the conversation, and he goes to Abigail, Nabal's wife, to tell her what's happened. And he lays out for her this disaster that Nabal's bringing on himself, how he's just offended David and his 400 men. Not exactly a brilliant idea. And he urges Abigail to react and do something. We see Abigail, it says, she acted quickly. She is decisive. She's in command. 
Abigail quickly organizes her servants to put together all of this food to load up on donkeys to send to David. It's so impressive. She is decisive. She is in command. And she puts together sheep and grain. She puts together bread and wine, cakes of raisins, cakes of figs, all sending it to David. It's a feast fit for a king that she sends to David. She loads them all on donkeys to send them ahead of her. Then she follows behind on her own donkey to follow the gift. It says that she's on her way. She gets into a mountain ravine on her journey to David, and there he is coming down the ravine towards her in his full rage. And it's just at this moment, Scripture tells us, that David has just made that promise to kill every male belonging to Nabal. That's when he arrives at Abigail. And she gets off her donkey, so she bows down to the ground, falls on her face before David's feet. She's taking a posture of humility that no one in this story has been willing to take. And then we hear the most brilliant speech from Abigail. She stops David in his tracks, and she lays this out quickly. I just want to outline her speech for you. It's brilliant and compelling. First of all, she apologizes. She asks for pardon. She takes responsibility for the situation, even though it's not her fault. She steps into the gap. Secondly, she tells David to disregard Nabal. Why are you worried about the comments of a fool towards you, David? Don't, don't listen to him. He's not worthy to consider. Don't let your life be shaped by him. Thirdly, she draws attention that God should get the credit for this moment. saying, this is not my own doing. God is the one who's intervening in your life right now, David. Fourthly, she reminds David of his purpose. I love this. God has promised to make you king, David. He's going to give you a dynasty so you can fight his battles, a.k.a. so you don't have to fight your own, David. Why are you fighting your own battles right now? You look like Saul. Fifth, she reminds David of God's justice. I know you feel hurt right now, David, but you've got to remember there is a judge who will one day come and set all things straight. You should depend on his justice, not your own. In the space of several paragraphs, Abigail gives this brilliant speech that is full of compelling theology and directing our hearts towards God. It's incredible. I just want you, first of all, to appreciate this portrayal of Abigail. The scripture is showing such a high view of women in this moment. That Abigail is described as a wise and compelling. She's an enterprising, brilliant person. She is persuasive. That's how scripture is laying out her character. She's not a shallow or flat person in this story. Actually, she's the hero of the story. She's the hero when God's own elected one-day king, he's the fool. And this woman is the one who's carrying the day, who's the example of wisdom. So we need to see that in the ancient Near East, when the story would be spoken, that had such a low view of women, it's bringing a critique to the people of that day to show how brilliant and capable, wise and compelling women are because they are made in the image of God. That's what Abigail is demonstrating in this story, a high view of women that would be critiquing the view of that day. Secondly, I want you to see about Abigail, how God is intervening through her. As David hears this speech from Abigail, he's amazed. And he says this in verse 32. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to me today. Then David continues, he blesses Abigail for her words. 
she comm- he commends her, but then he gives this amazing and affirming statement towards her. It's not just that she's wise, but God himself is using Abigail. She's been an instrument of the Most High. What better compliment is there? God has worked through you today. You've been one of his vessels. And this is incredible because we know in the previous chapter, just before, the first, the story right before this in chapter 24, David is the one full of wisdom. David is the one full of patience. He's restraining his men from revenge on Saul. So he's entering into wisdom there. But now a chapter later, David snaps. David fails. David is the one that needs to be restrained by someone because he's on the road to disaster. And he, he recognizes, God, you are intervening in my life. God, I've needed you to rescue me, not just from Saul. I've needed you to intervene and to rescue me from my own anger. I've needed you to rescue me from myself. So see the beauty here with me, the help and the gospel in the story that God is providing for us. He is intervening for you and I when we are stuck and headed in the wrong way into our own self-made disaster. Do you see this encouragement? That God does not leave us on our own, but he kindly comes to us. And that we need this mercy. Now I know that some of you, you have this in your own story, don't you? If you look back on your own life, and look at what God has done, does this not in some way show your own life? That you might have been headed into disaster? That you were headlong into your own folly? You were stuck in your own ways and running in the wrong direction. But who came and intervened in your life? Who came and stopped you when you were going into wrong, unhealthy things? Who by his mercy calmed you down, slowed you down, spoke into your heart, stop, relent, repent, turn aside, forgive, turn to me, listen, follow me. Wasn't it the Lord who stopped you in your tracks when you were headed in the wrong place? His kindness? This again is the sweetness of God for me. I love sitting in this. That I did not need deliverance from some theoretical thing out there. I needed deliverance from myself. As I look at my own story, I was caught up in my own ways. I was convinced by my own self-righteousness. I was caught up in my own sin, walking in those things, yet someone came and rescued me. I had someone that intervened when I was going in the wrong direction. The God intercepted me from my own wrong ways. So I want to say with David too, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord who has intervened to rescue me, not from something out there, but Lord, you saw that I was my own enemy. And that's what I needed deliverance from. Do you see the kindness here of God towards you? That we need a deliverer outside of ourselves to come and stop us in our tracks. I want to pause here and consider more deeply the speech that Abigail gives to consider maybe how you right now might need to receive God's intervention in your life. Or perhaps God is looking to use you as an Abigail to intercede and intercept someone else. What does Abigail lay out that our hearts need to hear? So just slow down with me. Consider these three things. First of all, God should define us, not other people. I want you to sit in this, especially if there's hurt, especially if you feel wounded by somebody else, and there's difficulty in your life around someone else. 
Consider this. God should define you, not other people. See, when David gets this insult, the rest of his behavior starts to be driven by Nabal. That he's offended and he's running into revenge, not for God, not for his men. David, again, is locked on himself in his own personal offense. And he's now allowing his behavior and his response to be driven by somebody else. He's no longer thinking, I'm defined by God. He has chosen me by his grace. He has made me his king. That's not what he's allowing himself to respond out of. He's instead responding out of personal offense from someone else. Do you see this? Now the ball has control of David. <laughs> he's determining and defining who he is in his actions. And I understand the difficulty of being hurt by other people. We're going to look at forgiveness here in, in a couple weeks. But first of all, to see, why should I let this person determine who I am? Even if they've done hurtful things to me, they should not have done. We'll get to God's justice in a second. Even if they've done that, why should I allow their words to define me? Shouldn't God be the one that shapes who I am, my view of myself and my response to other people? Shouldn't his kindness and his grace define me? So that yes, you can try to affect me, you can try to say hurtful things, but God's word will continue to set my path. Do you see this? I will not be controlled by other people's responses to me. God should define you, not other people. Secondly, if you feel offense, be reminded of God's purposes for you. Or perhaps remind other people who are sitting in, in the midst of rejection. I love that God does not just have a plan here for David's life. Clearly, we know that. But God also has a plan for you. Beautifully, it says in Ephesians that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's planned for us. So you're not just some random spare part. You're not just an accessory. You have a specific purpose from God that he has designed you and gifted you for. What an immense gift. God belongs to use your life. So be reminded of that purpose. And if you're living for your own self-given purpose, then yes, when people criticize you, when people say hard things against you, it can start to undermine you because you don't have the confidence of where your life is supposed to be headed. It's built on you, therefore it can crumble from other people. But if your life is built on a God-given purpose, what he says about you, how can other people's comments stop you? This was not your purpose in the first place. If God has said this about you, gifted you, designed you, then he will see it through. You have confidence be reminded of God's purpose for you. What he's called you to is so much more than fighting your own battles. Thirdly here, be reminded of God's justice. We need this in our day so badly. If we give up confidence in God, we will quickly want to take revenge and put that in our own hands. If we believe in a God of love, that never intervenes, never brings justice, but only is kind Santa Claus in the sky, if you're with me, if that's the kind of God we believe in, we will be tempted to take matters into our own hands when we're offended. We'll believe justice rests on us. But if we believe that because God is full of love, because he is love, therefore God will bring justice, He's not turned a blind eye to what's been wrong, done wrong to us or to other people. He will bring justice one day. That lets us set aside our anger, our revenge, our need to speak back or cut other people down. We can let that go, knowing, God, I give this to you. 
I trust your judgment and your justice, not my own. You're the rightful judge who knows all things. My view is skewed and limited, so I trust you instead. You see the power of this. Sit in these things. Be freed from other people. Trust God's purpose for your life. Rest in his judgment and justice one day. That's our hope. I love the story. plays this out of God's justice even. That after Abigail intervenes, she goes back home to Carmel. And she finds her husband, Nabal, in the midst of this massive celebration. He says he's in high spirits and he's very drunk. She doesn't say anything to him in that moment. But the next morning when Nabal wakes up, she tells him everything that almost happened. She tells him about stopping David on his way to wipe out Nabal and every male belonging to him. And it says that in this moment, Nabal's heart failed him and he became like a stone. Don't know exactly what this is. Could have been a stroke. But then it says 10 days later, God struck Nabal and he died. God's justice comes through. God will ultimately prevail and he will see us through. So we wrap up this story, though. One more comment that uh, David, now that Nabal is out of the way, seeing what an amazing woman Abigail is, he sends men to bring a proposal of marriage to Abigail. And just as quickly as she loaded up those donkeys, also quickly she responds to David's request for marriage and becomes his wife. Again, God's grace in this whole story. But before we wrap up this whole story, there's a lot more there. It's one thing that stood out to me as I wrestled with this story that was confusing to me. I kept coming back to David's curse. I kept coming back to David's promise that he said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by tomorrow morning I leave alive one male of all that belonged to Nabal. He, he see this. He's bringing a curse on himself. And Abigail comes to David, not before this, but after this moment. That's when God's intervention comes. So what of this curse that David's brought on himself? What of this promise for God's vengeance on him? And it helped me see that God doesn't just intervene to stop us in the midst of our road to disaster. But hear me, God also takes on himself our curses. God also takes on himself the places we have already failed the messes we have already made, he takes those on himself. It's not David that takes the price of that curse. It's not David that takes the weight of that promise of disaster. That God and his kindness takes that on himself. So if you're feeling here this morning, yes, I need God's intervention in my life to stop me in my headlong ways, but also I have already landed in folly. I've already made huge mistakes. I already can look in the rearview mirror and be full of regret. What then? I've already spoken curses and they're on my life. What about God's hope here? To see that God takes those on himself. That's his kindness to us. Not just to intervene, to turn us, but even in those places where we've failed and brought condemnation on ourselves, God says, that's mine. Because I want you to walk in life, I'll take that on myself. And this is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He became a curse for you and for me so that the kindness of God could be our inheritance. What a good king we have. How eager he is for you to walk in life and forgiveness and to know him. I'll take this payment on myself. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I want us to sing and worship more. 
I love when we're able to sit quietly and set our hearts before God. Love starting worship in this way, but I want you to give another chance, give you another chance to sit in this. Maybe examine your heart and say, God, where am I allowing myself to be determined by what other people have spoken or done to me? Where am I allowing myself to be defined by them rather than living out of what you say? So set yourself before him. Consider, God, what are the places I'm allowing myself to be defined by other people?